AJ at 150 Podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. David Whitner, professor of history at Utica College. Dr. Whitner is the author of Technology and the Culture of Progress in Meiji Japan, published by Rutledge in 2007. Dr. Whitner, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. So when we think of the Meiji period, we often talk about introduction of technology, Japan's modernization, and you've written specifically about science and technology in the modern Japanese empire. So I was hoping you might be able to give us a a brief overview of some of the technological transformation that Japan sees after the Meiji Restoration. Well, in many ways, what you're seeing is this transformation from proto-industry. I mean, the Tokugawa era was not void of industry. But it was not what we think of as, you know, like factory scale industry and factory organization. And that's probably one of the biggest changes you see, plus a lot of introduction of Western technologies and then at the state level and then kind of rapid adaptation of Western style technologies or transferred technologies to fit within a Japanese context, whether it's because of a shortage of materials or inability to produce, for example, iron machines having to modify biomaterials, whether you're talking about working with Japanese coal that is not suitable for coking or cross-breeding silkworms to produce a more acceptable or more appealing type of silk for an international market. So you kind of see this rapid influx and, you know, with the government working hard for import substitution and also to create an export product that was going to get the Japanese economy moving on an international scale. You were talking about some of the, the state-level programs that were adopted to bring over some of this technology. And we, and we think of the Iwakura mission in particular, you know, this kind of exploratory mission going abroad, all of these Japanese leaders seeing factories and almost picking them up wholesale, bringing them back. Ooh, that looks good. I want one of those. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit more about this process? How are these technologies brought into Japan? Is it all state-level? Is there some popular level? Is it all people going out? I mean, who are the people involved and how does this process work? When you're talking about, you know, factories and, you know, something like Tomioka Filature or Kamaishi Ironworks or, you know, cement factories or glassworks, that's primarily being done at the government level or some degree of government and private partnership, although most of it is it's just too expensive for the average entrepreneur. You know, the governments work along with foreign engineers. They would hire foreign engineers, foreign advisors. The traditional belief is that, you know, the government brings in foreign advisors, the foreign advisors bring in these technologies and on some level sold the Japanese either a bill of goods or something that was not going to work very well until Japanese engineers fixed it. The reality is the government would hire engineers and at the same time send promising Japanese men typically overseas to be trained in foreign universities and then in factories as well to come back and become the new Japanese experts. And at the same time, they're also establishing uh, institutions of higher education, you know, you know, Tokyo University, for example, or different schools, you know, it's a school of engineering where they're going to be um, training these who are going to become the new Japanese experts and eventually replace the foreign engineers who were just too darn expensive to keep. There's always a famous story about how some of these engineers were making more than the prime minister. But so the Japanese would be, again, this kind of multi-pronged approach or multifaceted approach of bringing in foreign engineers, sending out their own people, training their own people. And depending what the project was, either the government seemed to have its own ideas of what technologies were the most appropriate for Japan, or they would rely strictly on the engineers. And usually it was kind of a combination of the two. 
when it came down to private industry or private industrialization, you have this whole process whereby local entrepreneurs or businessmen are visiting you know, the so-called model factories like Tomioka and trying to figure out what they can bring to their factories, back to their prefectures. Most of what the government was constructing was just well beyond the means of, as I said, of, of any entrepreneur. And so they're scaling down in size until you get at least the 1880s. You're talking things that are much smaller in scale. They're not relying on steam engines for power. Very often it's water wheels. If they do use a steam engine, they're much smaller than what the government was importing from typically England. You know, So you, you end up getting this process by which you have the government investing and establishing what are always called the model factories, but they're also getting into mining as well. I don't really consider a mine to be a factory, but still along those same lines where the government is investing in coal mining, ferrous metal mining, as well as precious metals. Silk, as we know, cotton, which doesn't do too well for them, ironworks, you know, and kind of getting into everything, Western-style printing, cement works, glass works, shipyards. And at roughly the same time, you start to see this expansion on the local level where Japanese entrepreneurs are looking for ways to get into, for example, silk reeling. They can't import a boiler from England. It's too expensive. And so they turn to Japanese craftsmen and you could call them technologists. Some of them are actually trained engineers by the mid and late 1870s who are coming up with their own ways of manufacturing, for example, a boiler that is um, using thin wall, you know, very thin plate, making it much less expensive to manufacture, making it possible for them to manufacture. They just don't have the technology yet to make big high pressure boilers. But then again, silk reeling doesn't need a high pressure boiler. And so they're kind of adapting what they've got to what they can do with what they need. And so, you know, it's going in multiple directions. You know, there's always the famous story where people came into Tomioka silk villager and, you know, they look at these cast iron machines and gleaming copper and glass and ceramics, which they just can't do. And so they basically copy the machines at making it out of wood. Instead of using boilers, they're using kindling for fires. They use ceramic bowls instead of glass or copper. You know, and the story goes on, and it's a lot of it is this kind of practical adaptation. You were talking about these foreign advisors who would come over and, and teach Japanese engineers how to build these things. And some of the Japanese students that went overseas, uh, in, in my own research, I came across you know, civil engineers who were being sent to places like the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York. It, it is really remarkable when you think about it. one of the earliest ministries in the government is the Ministry of Public Works, founded in, in the early 1870s, establishing this Imperial College of Engineering very early in the Meiji period. Why do you think there was such an emphasis on public works and engineering for the early Meiji government? My way of thinking about it, some of it is literally trying to build this modern nation. The Japanese are fully aware of what's going on in the rest of East Asia, and frankly, the world, you know, following the Iwakura mission, and wanting to be modern in in the Western sense. And so that, you know, in order to become modern, I've always argued that you, you need to have the trappings of the West. And so this desire to make brick buildings, iron machines, railroads, it's well known that, you know, Victorian era railroads are kind of this hallmark of modernity. So the Japanese had to have them. Same thing with iron bridges and lighthouses. And some of it is the British advisors and French coming in and saying, well, you need these things in order to be modern and to be like us, and the Japanese were more than happy to go along with that. Some of it's economic. You know, you've got people like Fukuzawa Yukichi and the Shibusawa Eiichi who look at the West and say, you know, the, the West has all these things and, you know, we're going to be subsumed financially or economically if we don't have our own export items. And there was a large demand for Japanese silk, thanks, unfortunately, for China to, you know, Taiping Rebellion 
and British interference, but gave the Japanese an opportunity to, you know, to really expand. So a lot of it has to do with, you know, the Japanese looking for export items and trying to reduce imports. You know, you've got, I guess, silk and coal being the big exports. And so you need an efficient way to, to produce those. And eventually it's also trying to cut back on the imports of things like cotton. There's a misunderstanding that's like very often repeated about foreign advisors, you know, the Oyatoi Gaikokujin. And that's that the government brought in these advisors and then followed their every whim and every decision. And it really wasn't the case. In some industries, you do have foreign advisors coming up with an idea and the government following it. And in other instances, the government tells the advisors what they want to do and they literally will take foreign advice and then ignore it altogether or modify it to fit what they want to achieve, they meaning the kind of the oligarchy. And there's even fights within the government over the best way to modernize an industry. You know, one that I've written about is between, you know, the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Public Works over the best technology to use for silk reeling, where the Ministry of Public Works kind of loses out because, well, the Ministry of Finance controls finances. And so they're able to kind of steer the country the way they want it to go, at least on this national filature level. But a lot of the foreign advisors, the government's trying to replace them. And so as I, I said before, you know, there's this, this three-way, I guess a three-pronged approach towards getting foreign knowledge, foreign advisors, Japanese being sent overseas to learn and Japanese being trained at, at home. But it's the idea that there was kind of this blind obedience to foreign advisors. It's just, it's wrong. It almost fits with um, a sense of kind of national pride that, you know, certain industries failed because they followed foreign advice. You know, Japanese ingenuity kind of took over after they got rid of the foreign advisors and demonstrated the foreign advisors' erroneous ways or just their lack of knowledge. And to be fair, a lot of foreign advisors were totally incompetent. They came to Japan looking to make money. A famous story about a uh, quote-unquote engineer who, I believe he's at, at, at Iwata Ironworks, who they found years later was back in some, I believe it was an iron mill in, in Cleveland, who was uh, sweeping floors. He was not an engineer at all. But... I'm reminded of another story as well. Uh, even in negotiating the terms for the loan to build the first railway uh, between Tokyo and Yokohama, the Japanese government got kind of swindled by one of these foreign advisors. But then speaking of, of these kind of railway stories, there's another one that bespeaks another narrative about the foreign advisors. And this one has to do with the algorithm that the foreign advisor was using to make the time schedule. And he would keep it under lock and key in his office, you know, at night. And, you know, one one day the door is left ajar or whatever. And then suddenly he's fired the next day. Presumably, you know, the apocryphal message here is that, you know, once the, the Japanese discovered the secret of the technology, then they would send these guys home. You know, it doesn't surprise me at all because, I mean, the, the government's, purpose. I mean, these guys are, are hired on temporary contracts, you know, they're kind of year to year. And so as soon as the Japanese could get rid of them, they would. Sometimes it was simply they received the information they needed. Other times they just did not get along with certain advisors or certain advisors just didn't get along with the Japanese or with other advisors who were working on different projects. So it does make sense that uh, that they let him go once they knew the secrets. Because I mean, it, it's in many ways, it's that's that was the whole idea. You were talking about people like Shibasawa Eiichi, you could also think of Iwasaki Yatoro, who, who starts a Mitsubishi conglomerate. 
And then also some of these Tokugawa precursors for industrialization during the Meiji period. And, and now we can reconsider how rapid this industrialization was during the Meiji period. But what would you say are some of the factors that allow this industrialization to take place as quickly as it does? To keep it somewhat succinct, in many ways, there's kind of this sense of urgency that Japan needs to industrialize. I mean, the daimyo are having financial problems, as was the bakufu. And so anything that they could do to increase exports, basically try to kind of refill their coffers, was a plus. You know, the Satsuma Domi, like the, you know, the Shimazu family, it's kind of working in ironwork somewhat, but in, you know, especially with cotton mills, I guess they're most famous for. And it's just kind of this go fast attempt to industrialize and uh, meeting an opportunity for export. And at the same time, meeting an opportunity for reducing imports. The theme of import substitution, I think, is kind of pervasive throughout the early Meiji era, probably even halfway through it, as kind of a stimulus for industrialization. Really, the whole kind of the first half of the Meiji era, you know, a lot of historians look at the 1880s, 1886 or so as kind of the beginning of the Japanese Industrial Revolution. I would think it starts before that, but you really have this whole era starting from Perry up until that time, up until the mid-1880s, of in many ways kind of trial and error industrialization and trial and error technology transfer. Sometimes that actually represents state-of-the-art in certain industries, like iron industry. It's not a science, so it is a lot of trial and error. But in other cases, it's the Japanese trying to industrialize by whatever means they can, as quickly as they can. And if something works, that's great. And if it doesn't, they'll try again. And to my reading, it's, a lot of it's, it's financial. And you know, it's nation building and trying to remain independent, driving industrialization. You mentioned Perry, and I noticed that you wrote a biography of Commodore Perry. Uh, one of the things that my students enjoy the most when I talk about the coming of Perry in 1853, and I think it's when he comes back in 1854, he actually sets up a miniature railway on the beach. And she wanna, so it is this kind of, it, like you said, an early example of that technological transfer, even in the 1850s. Yeah. I mean, the Japanese learn really quickly about Western technology, at least especially military technology, which is also a huge stimulus in early industrialization. You know, once the Japanese are on the receiving end of Western artillery fire, they realize that they need to modernize their weapons. You know, Tokugawa cannon were 17th and 18th century vintage. And even if they were brand new, they were made in an old style. So they were largely ineffective. And so that's, you know, that's a big push for the early iron industry. In some ways, I don't know if it's ironic, but when you look at some early industry, uh, like an early iron industry, you see the Japanese constructing re reverberatory furnaces. You know, there's the famous example with, you know, with Oshima Takato for Nambu Domain. There's the Niriyama furnaces, Kyushu, and they're kind of starting out of step, and it's almost kind of mirroring how Dutch learning came to Japan kind of in bits and pieces, and you know, whatever the book was that the Dutch ship captain had on board is what the Japanese got. And so they're in some ways skipping steps in trying to modernize, trying to use reverberatory furnace before actually creating pig iron that's of a quality that you can actually use in a reverberatory furnace. So a lot of their efforts are, they're noble, but not necessarily that effective, which then drives further, I guess you could call it further innovation because you've, then you you know, have men like Oshima Takato and others you know, taking a step back and then trying to create the raw materials that they actually can use to put into a reverberatory furnace or use to cast more modern weapons. I understand you're also working on a project called Meiji Industrialization Revisited. 
Now, we've been talking a lot about Meiji industrialization, but I, I'm curious, uh, when you say revisited, are, are there certain aspects of this narrative that you're reconsidering or challenging in some way? Well, most of my work has always been kind of challenging traditional narrative if it's not the blind obedience to Yatoi, to the, um, you know, the way Japanese considered what technologies. A lot of what I do is actually looking at technology transfer and choice of technique and why the Japanese chose the technologies they did when, at least to my reading of it, in some instances, it they just didn't make any sense. And so, you know, what the idea of revisiting it, it's first, I have to admit right off the bat that I'm borrowing Dallas Finn's title of of her book. But then um, my beliefs are that the, a lot of the technology transfer and a lot of the way we look at technology in Japan has always been, it's it's not just my belief, but it's it's always been from an economic perspective. And, you know, whether it's straight economics or developmental economics, that's how Japanese industrialization has kind of always been considered. Whether it's from a developmental economics perspective or the perspective of looking at economic growth or using Japan as a model for modern developing nations, most technology transfer is not considered from the perspective of technology or from innovation. These studies, which are, you know, many of them are very good, I feel leave out one of the most important parts, which is society and culture. You can't have these technologies transfer into Japan. We all know they don't transfer in lock, stock, and barrel and remain that way. You know, the Meiji government could buy a complete factory, bring it to Japan, set it up, but it's not going to work. Or it's not going to work as intended until it fits within Japanese cultural expectations. You know, you're changing who the workers are, you're changing methods, you're changing systems. This famous story with Tomioka, silk filleter, you know, they built this factory with, without knowing who was actually going to work there. And culturally, farmers were, were unwilling to send their daughters to work in a factory that were inhabited by, you know, the famous blood-drinking French, because they saw Frenchmen drinking red wine. You similarly have stories of, you know, samurai attacking telegraph poles because of blood dripping out of the wires, which was just rust dripping off of iron wire. You need this cultural component to go along with economics and labor and management. And, you know, I've been criticized for having this everything counts or everything matters approach to looking at the history of technology. But that's exactly my point. And it's something you see in innovation studies, but not in history of technology or technology transfer so much. You mentioned several examples of cases where the government tried things out and they didn't work, and so you were using these as case studies for challenging the narrative of Meiji industrialization success. Could you give a few of those examples? Well, Tomioka is one of them. I mean, Tomioka works. It takes probably 20 years to actually become the filature that the government intended, and shortly thereafter they sell it. But there's this difference between technology of expectation and reality. And so with Part of the problem for Tomioka that I've argued before is that it's got too many purposes. You know, on the one hand, it's a model factory. On the other hand, it's supposed to be producing high quality silk and tied to being a model factory, you know, it's a training grounds. So if you're training people, they don't necessarily make high quality products. It's supposed to make money. Then it's not supposed to make money because that's not Confucian. It's supposed to be an exemplar of civilization. And so you've got all of these different factors compounding to frustrate the creation of a economically efficient, large filature in Japan. They do it, but it's 
rocky in the beginning. If you look at Kamaishi Ironworks, it's all trial and error. And I mean, that was, I said earlier, that's kind of state of the art for the iron industry in the 1870s and 1880s. It is trial and error. How you design a furnace is based on your raw materials. And, you know, if you look at metallurgical manuals from the time, their suggestion is go out and find somebody else who uses the same type of raw materials you use and copy their furnaces. And so with Kamaishi, the Japanese are struggling to, to produce iron. They're running out of raw materials. They're using poor quality materials. And frankly, the government's in a hurry. It's a classic story of failure in that the government ends up shutting down the ironworks and selling it off to the private sector because they failed to produce pig iron there. The reality is they actually don't fail to produce pig iron. They fail to produce pig iron in any quantity, and then they run out of raw materials, not because of poor planning and shortages. The furnaces are not as efficient as they expect them to be, so they are running low. But then they have a fire in the warehouse or the storage facility for all the charcoal. So all of their raw materials went up in smoke, literally. The government then kind of changes directions, trying to establish cotton mills. They put together you know, these essentially kits to set up small cotton mills that are just not large enough to meet economies of scale. And they're giving these out to the, you know, the private sector. And so they're failing on the economic level. They just can't compete. On the topic of narratives, another narrative that we're seeing recently about the Meiji Restoration and Meiji industrialization has to do with Meiji at 150, of course. And there seems to be a lot of emphasis in Japan on the industrialization at this moment of the 150th. And in fact, many of these sites we were just talking about have now been recognized by UNESCO. And you were talking before about you know Japan being a model of development for other countries. Do you see some relation between this? Is this one of the reasons why that there's so much emphasis on industrialization in the government's Meiji at 150 programs? I don't know if that's kind of one of the driving factors, but it is one of the things that in many ways makes Japan unique. And I hate the uniqueness narrative, but you know, Japan was the only country or is the only country that was able to westernize as rapidly as it did at that time. And so it's, you know, it is a, it is a point of pride. And if people are following kind of the, the traditional narrative of, as I said you know, earlier, of Japan being sold a bill of goods by foreign engineers and then only being able to modernize and industrialize once the Japanese engineers took over, then it is kind of a definite point of pride. Some of it, and I'm not sure what if this is a chicken or egg thing, but you know, industrial tourism has become rather popular in Japan. It's been, it been that way for at least a decade. But what's impressive is you have some sites like Tomioka that um, managed to get through God knows how many earthquakes and wars, or at least, well, one war. And the factory is, when they shut down operations, I think it was 1985, it looks like they walked away from an 1872 factory, locked the door, and that's how it sat. It's just an amazing sight that the foresight to preserve it, because it was handed over to uh, Guma Prefecture, and they preserved it. I was very tangentially involved with kind of the UNESCO program, to, you know, with the Japanese program to get that recognized by UNESCO. But, um, you know, it's just an amazing facility and just, I think, kind of a celebration of your heritage in many ways. I couldn't honestly comment as to whether it's part of national pride or just being seen as still wanting to use Japan as a model for industrializing countries. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. 
This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.